Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. It's with great pleasure that I introduce my guest today, Joel Selvin, New York Times best-selling author and longtime music critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. He is a prolific author, having written close to 20 books, and the one he's here with us today to talk about is... Eltamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and The Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. Great book. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eric. How long was this book in the making? Was this a subject that you'd wanted to write about for a while? That's not an easy question to answer. Um, in, in in some regards, the book came together re- relatively quickly. In other regards, it took me like 40 years to do it. As uh, the uh, Chronicle music critic, I came on board just a couple years after Altamont, and the smell was still in the air. Uh, over the course of my time there, I, I, I came to know many people who were associated with the event, and, you know, I would uh, pick up lore and, and conversations with them. In 1994, I did a book called Summer of Love, which encompassed the Altamont story. And I'd interviewed pretty much everybody on the San Francisco rock scene for that book. So I collected up all kinds of interviews about Altamont back in 1993, 94. Um, The actual book that you're holding and talking about uh, was kind of the idea of the editor. Uh, Say, you know what would make a good book? And uh, it was, uh, oh, really? Oh, you think? Um, so, uh, it's one of those things of like, I was just too close to the story and and somebody had it pointed out to me. So the first thing I did was I drove down to Monterey to see Rock Scully, who had been the, uh, 
uh, original manager of the Grateful Dead and, and, and kind of one of the key instigators of this whole Altamont thing. And uh, we had a lovely day, uh, had lunch outside in uh, some restaurant, and, and Rock was just looking fabulous. And, and he told me the, the story of how Altamont started. And I drove home from Monterey, it was about two and a half hours from San Francisco, just my, my brain was humming because I knew I had just been given on a silver platter the opening chapter to a book. Two months later, Rock died. He'd had cancer and not mentioned it to anybody. And I realized not only was I not going to get that follow-up interview, but that this book needed to be written now because this stuff was just evaporating in front of my eyes. So I guess I'd like to ask you about that then. Um, as you mentioned, your story starts with a character called Rock Scully. He was larger than life. <laughs> How was he involved with all of this? Oh, it's such a great story. Uh, so Rock was uh, sent to London to confer with some people that wanted to put on free concerts in the in the park, Hyde Park in London. Uh, and, of course, the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane were world famous for their concerts in the park. When he got to Heathrow Airport, uh, he was arrested uh, having uh, a bunch of uh, Owsley LSD uh, tabs uh, in his possession. Not that they really knew what that was, but that the, he spent the weekend in jail. And the concert promoters who uh, had summoned him, uh, we're in a panic, and, and they were associated with the Rolling Stones. Uh, so on Monday, uh, they went out and bailed him out of uh, jail out by Heathrow, and they brought him back, and he was explaining that along with everything else, he had uh, a bunch of California Sensimia marijuana in luggage that he left at Heathrow when he got arrested. And the information that that piece of information and, and, and California marijuana at that point was highly rare in England. They just never saw anything like it. Uh, and uh, word got back and Keith Richards heard about it. And he told them that he wanted Rock to go out and get the pot. So Rock put on a coat and tie, took a cab out to the airport, didn't know what the hell he was going to be seeing, walks in, gets his bag, walks out, gets a cab that night. He and his girlfriend go over to Keith Richards' house, and they stay up all night smoking this weed and other things um, and talking. And it was a you know cross-cultural summit meeting. And the idea of doing a free concert in Golden Gate Park came up, and, and Rock told Keith, oh, man, we could definitely do that for you. would be no sweat. Now, I don't know how serious that whole discussion was because – the Rock also discussed uh, during the course of the evening doing concerts by the Rolling Stones at Stonehenge, at the Taj Mahal. So I'm not really sure when he stumbled out at six in the morning how serious he took all that. And then the next thing that happens is some giant crisis back home in Marin County involving the band's manager, Mickey Hart, drummer Mickey Hart's father, Lenny, is just. Is, is doing all kinds of subterfuge and Rock doesn't know what's going on. Lenny would eventually disappear with all the band's money and be arrested and spend time in jail. But And that was just about to happen. But the, the beginning signs were happening. And so he was caught up in this drama of, A, his uh, uh, deportation trial for drug uh, in England, and B, all this 
stuff back home with the Grateful Dead. Uh, and he, I don't think he thought about the Keith Richards thing for a, a minute afterwards, but Keith did. And when the Stones came to Los Angeles in October 69 to begin their U.S. tour, uh, Richard summoned Scully down to Los Angeles to you know, make plans for this concert. So the Stones, as you point out in your book, were coming out of a dark period, as you put it. Where were they in their career in 1969? They were frantically seeking money. They were all really broke. Uh, Keith couldn't even raise 5,000 pounds to put a down payment on a piece of real estate. And the reason they were broke was they were managed by Alan Klein, a semi-scrupulous New York accountant and uh, uh, manager who uh, had bottlenecked all their money and was not paying them any of their royalties. And all their deals with the outside world went through Alan's office, so they didn't have any money. And they met with a banker, a Swiss banker named uh, Prince Rupert, uh, Rupert Lowenstein. And he really didn't know who the Rolling Stones were or Mick Jagger or anything, but he checked it out and realized that quickly the situation was that they needed to form a new company and get new revenue that was outside their contract system with Alan Klein. And he suggested they tour the United States. Well, they did. And it would, they set the tour up in advance with a new company. They held up the American promoters for 100% of the fees in advance because they had so little money they needed the promoters to finance the tour. They got to Los Angeles in October. They were going to put some finishing touches in, um, on the new album, Let It Bleed, uh, in the studios there before taking off and do some rehearsing, I guess. It had been three years since the Rolling Stones had been in America, and uh, their previous tour was a 25-minute set on top of a bill that had another dozen one-hit wonders on, uh, on it, and uh, the girls would scream all through the set, and nobody listened, and they got out of town as fast as they could. Now they're back in the fall of 1969 when Led Zeppelin is like the biggest new rock band in the world, and they're going around the country playing a two-and-a-half-hour set and blowing minds. And, and the Rolling Stones have a, a, to adjust to a new reality, but they also find that this whole rock thing in America has just exploded, and that they themselves are major celebrities sitting on the very top of this world. And they discover this almost immediately on arriving in Hollywood and going out to nightclubs and, and, and meeting musicians and stuff like that. And it becomes very apparent real quickly that this money-grab U.S. tour was going to be a very good opportunity. And immediately, they started to readjust their scale. And the idea of this free concert at the end of the tour started to merge with the thinking of doing a movie uh, that would capitalize on the live performances in the tour. Um, and, of course, this is two months after Woodstock, and then everybody knows the Woodstock movie is in post-production and is coming out the following March. Uh, so... I think the idea of staging a little Woodstock of their own as the climactic scene to their concert movie was just irresistible. So in one of the chapters of, of this book, you paint this fascinating picture of San Francisco in the late 60s. 
Could you give us a, a better understanding of what the rock scene was like during this era in this city? Well, in 1969, San Francisco was in the center of the pop music universe. Um, the biggest new band of the year was Creedence Clearwater Revival. They had three hit albums out in 1969. Uh, the biggest band of the year the year before, in 1968, was Big Brother and the Holding Company, featuring Janis Joplin. Uh, Sly and the Family Stone had had a huge impact that year. I mean, San Francisco was just the leading edge of this exciting avant-garde rock movement. San Francisco on an axis with London in many ways. Um, and the San Francisco music scene had developed over the previous three years uh, out of a kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, subcultural movement that people recognized as hippies. But it was a, a, a genuine uh, social movement with underlying uh, philosophies and, and agendas and points of view. Uh, and in 1966, there was a small enough group of people that everybody pretty much agreed. By 1969, the drug scene had changed tremendously. The, uh, pardon the expression, demographics of the movement had really altered. And uh, the utopian ideals of the Haight-Ashbury community had attracted a lot of sort of less responsible individuals and had started the scene. And all through the summer of 67, Haight Street was in descent. Uh, speed became popular on the street. There was lots of like uh, runaways, thousands of runaways living and sleeping on the streets. And the whole scene became somewhat more contentious within itself as it spread for instance the left-wing politicos really had issues with the sybaritic hippies that only wanted to get high and dance uh and and those uh that factionalization began to show up in the uh uh latter part of 69 especially and this is in the book around a rock festival that was planned to take place in San Francisco right about the same time as Woodstock called the Wild West Festival. It was a massively ambitious undertaking that was they pulled the uh, plug on about two weeks out because of all the contention in the hippie community between the politicos and the hippies over the festival. So that, that sort of was, was headed up, and, and the, the counterculture, the underground, was just looming large in global... Uh, culture at that point. I mean, the Rolling Stones wanted to be embraced by this new underground, and they felt like they were somewhat outside it. Uh, they, they saw, for instance, the regard in which Bob Dylan was held by this underground. So they wanted to cater to that, and, and that's also was part of the thinking that led to this free concert idea. So could you tell us the story behind how this concert came to happen? Who were the players? Who were the organizers? Uh, how did it get off the ground? The concert was never organized, never uh, run by any hierarchy. It never had a plan. It was never committed to paper. It was an improvisation. Scully came down to Los Angeles. He brought with him Haight-Ashbury community leader Emmett Grogan of the Diggers. 
And then Grogan brought up in the meeting, well, what are we going to do about people needing water and food? You're going to get a half a million people out in Golden Gate Park. They need to go to the bathroom. And Jagger actually said logistical issues can be dealt with later. So they were sent back to San Francisco to make this thing happen. And, and, and Scully had a plan to make it happen in Golden Gate Park by an act of subterfuge. He was going to take out a permit for the concert and explain to the, uh, the city that it was going to be a Jefferson Airplane Grateful Dead concert, and then in the last 24 hours announce a special guest. And that probably would have worked, and it had some real advantages that, that would become crucial when that fell apart. And what apparently happened was that the Stones tour party had a unofficial associate named John James, who showed up telling the Stones he worked for Chrysler and could get them free cars. And he told Chrysler he worked for the Stones and could get them an endorsement. He actually seems to have been somebody who was living in the witness protection program. And he associated with uh, Alan Klein's nephew, Ronnie Schneider, who had been a tour accountant when the band was still working with Klein. And they offered him the job of tour manager. Uh, and he was out of his uncle's business overnight. So those were the two guys in kind of in charge of the, the tour, such as it was, although, believe me, every decision they made was double-checked by Mick Jagger. And John James just thought it was ridiculous that the, these hippies in San Francisco were trying to deal with this uh, park issue. He was going to take it up with the mayor's office himself, man-to-man, superstar-to-superstar. Well, the mayor of San Francisco was a virulent anti-hippie. And although the Grateful Dead had everything wired at the Parks Department, they had no friends in the mayor's office. And when John James reached the mayor's office, Golden Gate Park was over. And it was never going to happen. So now they don't have a location. But the next day, after Golden Gate Park disappears, Mick Jagger announces the concert at a press conference in New York and announces the date. And he says it's somewhere near San Francisco. So now it's incumbent upon everybody to find a place uh, shortly after the New York dates, which is where the movie starts, by the way. They don't even start shooting the movie until like the final dates of the tour. Uh, uh, shortly after the New York dates, this, the band repairs to Muscle Shoals, Alabama to do some recording. And they dispatch Sam Cutler, their tour director, to go out to San Francisco and work with the dead on this free concert. And the Tuesday before the Saturday concert, they find a motor raceway about 60 miles north of San Francisco called Sears Point. And they go up there and they look it over and figure this could work. And they make a deal with the executives of the racetrack who are on site. And on Wednesday, they start loading up gear and building a stage and bringing in a sound system. And, and, and you know, a, a, a caravan of hippies is, is on the scene. On later Wednesday... The corporate owners of the raceway, Filmways, discovers that this is going on, and they step into the situation. Now, they're a little bit angry about their association with the Rolling Stones previously on the tour because they promoted the Los Angeles dates, and the Stones canceled a third show that would have been very profitable for them. So they're a little miffed at the Stones, and they're in the film business. And they also didn't believe, by the way, the Stone story that this was being done for Vietnamese orphans. So, you know, kudos to uh, Filmways on that score. And uh, so they stepped up. They wanted a piece of the film. Uh, They wanted a $100,000 rental fee. 
I mean, they just wanted, you know, legitimate sort of business stuff. And the Stones absolutely refused. The Stones, Reed and Mick Jagger, absolutely refused to negotiate this at all. One of the film crew uh, had hired, uh, uh, contacted a famous San Francisco attorney named Melvin Belli, and he was kind of representing the Stones. There's a scene in the documentary movie shot in Belli's office, and he's talking on the phone. The person he's talking to is actually the sheriff of Sonoma County, who is pretty much telling him that if they bring that stuff up there in Sonoma, he is going to arrest them and put them in jail. And they're sitting there, like on Thursday now, not knowing what to do. And the phone rings, and this is a guy named Dick Carter, who owns a dilapidated, uh, low-rent racetrack 60 miles east of San Francisco, way past the suburbs, way past the exurbs, you know, on the, on the edge of Central Valley. And the biggest crowd he's ever had is 5,000 people for a demolition derby. And he says, you can do it at my place. All I want is the publicity. Well, they don't know what to make of that. They send Rock Scully and Michael Lang, the producer of Woodstock, who has showed up in town because, well, he's the producer of Woodstock. And they get a radio station helicopter and fly from the Grateful Dead's headquarters in Rin County over to Altamont. And Rock tells me they get up over the hill and they start coming down. And he looks out at this raceway and he sees all the broken glass and the oil stains and the dry grass and... He just thinks it's like horrible. And he's like surveying this catastrophe when he hears Michael Lang say, oh, this is perfect. We can do it here. Well, you know, goes, what do I know? This is the guy who did Woodstock. Woodstock was big juju in December 1969. So they pushed the button about four o'clock on Thursday and started to undo the stage up at um, Sonoma and fly it piece by piece, helicopter by helicopter, over to Altamont. Uh, they had to pull a sound system out of a couple of different places, and they had to build the stage before noon on Saturday. And uh, I talked to a lot of people that worked on that project, you know, stage crew and stuff. Uh, they, 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 there were no flashlights. There were only a very few walkie-talkies. Um, making sure speakers are in phase and the utter dark is very difficult and the equipment was so jerry-rigged together that it was essentially two different sound systems run from two different boards. And they never really worked all that well. But they were still plugging in cables when Santana was announced at the opening of the concert 20 minutes after 12 on Saturday. What was the, the lineup for the concert? Santana was followed by the Jefferson Airplane who were followed by uh, Flying Burrito Brothers, who were followed by a very short set from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. The Grateful Dead were supposed to appear after that, but they'd showed up on the scene and run into uh, what was going on. I mean, their guy, Bert Kangasen, had been beat to the point where he had 60 stitches in his head. Uh, the uh, uh, head of their road crew, Rex Jackson, had two bl uh, black eyes. He'd been cold-cocked by uh, Hell's Angel. And then they also heard that one of the Hells Angels had beat up Marty Ballin on stage during the airplane set. So they were pretty alarmed, and they, they got into a van to have a little impromptu band meeting. Another Hells Angel thought he was cute, locked him in the van, which was a pretty scary few minutes. And that pretty much put the uh, kibosh on it. They decided they didn't want to play. They didn't want to deal with the energy. They didn't think it would be a, a, a winning situation in any regard. So the next two hours... The end of the day, the crowd just sat there. 
shoulder to shoulder. I mean, just jammed in there. Tens of thousands of people on LSD and other psychedelic drugs, uh, some of them you know, un, uh, involuntarily. Uh, and as the temperature dropped down to, oh, what, like high 30s, low 40s, very cold December night, the uh, Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels showed up, led by their uh, uh, president, Sonny Barger, and, and just rode through the crowd. It was a demonstration of power that, that, that was not lost on anybody there. Uh, they assembled on the front of the stage. And uh, after dark, because, of course, they were making a movie, and, only, and stars only come out at night. So after dark, the Stones stepped up. They've always claimed it was because Bill Wyman was uh, late to the scene, but I don't think that's really the case. Um, I think that they'd always intended to play in the dark. They brought lights for it. One of the more controversial stories, and please correct me if this is wrong, um, is how the, the Hells Angels got involved in all of this. <laughs> and this infamous $500 worth of beer money story could you clarify things? How did how did the Hells Angels end up there? Were they invited by Mick Jagger? When Sam Cutler came to San Francisco to finalize details, Rock Scully uh, took him to meet with some Hells Angels from the San Francisco chapter. And they were going to be there, whether you invited them or not. They were well-known to the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and all the San Francisco bands. Uh, they were the distributors of the LSD that, that uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley uh, made and the Grateful Dead enjoyed, uh, selling like $50,000 of it a week. Uh, so they, they were they were welcome in, in the rock scene. And, and this concert was going to be in San Francisco at that point, remember? So they would have jurisdiction over the other Hells Angels who showed up. When the concert moved to Sonoma, Terry the Tramp, who was one of the real close associates of the Grateful Dead in the Hells Angels, he warned Rock that they were going to lose jurisdiction and that this was going to be a big problem. And indeed, at the actual event, the Hells Angels who showed up in the front of the stage were from a different chapter. The San Francisco chapter was backstage in a school bus that they brought. The San Jose chapter was new. They'd been formed that summer after a vicious turf war with a group called the Gypsy Jokers. And they pieced this new chapter together out of like a few old Gypsy Jokers and some South Bay Hells Angels and they had a lot of prospects, and prospects were like indentured servants that wanted to be members and were on probation. Uh, and these guys were from San Jose. San Jose is like 60 miles south of San Francisco, but in 1969, it was like a thousand miles away culturally. It was still a, a, a car town where people had grease in their hair. And the people down there weren't necessarily uh, the Fillmore Auditorium Avalon ballroom types. So they showed up and, uh, uh, with their uh, prospects, and they parked their bikes right in front of the stage. Uh, the producers, by the way, had strung a string across the front to keep the audience back. Very effective. The uh, motorcycles became a flashpoint, especially during 
the stone set when there was so much excitement and, and, and turbulence. Then, in fact, everything starts real early in the stone set when Sonny Barger sees some uh, kid jumping up and down on a bike, uh, uh, setting off a short circuit and starting a fire. And Barger just dives into the crowd to go knock the kid off the bike. All the other Hells Angels on stage see Sonny Barger head into the crowd, and they just jump in after him and start laying waste with pool cues and whatever the hell they've got. Uh, that's where Mick stops the, the show and, and starts, you know, brothers and sisters, do, are we have to fight, you know. I was, it, it, he didn't know what to do. And, you know, they've always claimed the Stones that they really didn't know what was happening out there, and that's such utter BS, and you can tell that from the movie, because when the iron from Sonoma was originally sent to the new site. Chip Monk, the stage manager, directed four 60-foot light towers to be built because he was expecting spotlights to come and he could light the stage from behind, uh, from in front. He had 50,000 watts of backlight on the stage, but he was waiting for these spotlights and he built the 60-foot towers and that only left enough iron for a three-foot-tall stage, that would be a problem, too. I mean, literally, you could just step up on that stage from the audience. So, actually, the spotlights never showed up. So those light towers were never used. People climbed up on them uh, and swarmed all over them, but there was no light in front of the band. The only light was 50,000 watts of backlight, so it was like a beam of light across the entire stage and it not only backlit the band and everybody on stage but it cast a light out into the first 50 yards of the audience with no uh, spotlights in front of them canceling it out making it difficult to see man those guys saw everything that was going on you can tell that too there's a scene in the movie where Jagger's dancing around spinning around not paying any attention his eyes just happen to catch somebody getting clubbed out in the audience and he just stops and and you can see his face drop and then he like picks it up and turns again and and same with Meredith Hunter you know the guy that got killed there the, the Stones voice claimed they knew nothing about it, but there, there, there's a photo in my book that'll tell you the real story. Uh, Hunter's body was flopped right on stage by uh, some people who carried it up and put it right in front of Keith Richards. And the Hells Angels just swarmed over him and pushed it back into the audience. But at that moment, Beth Bagby, who took that fantastic cover photo on my book, took a picture showing Keith Richards like rearing back appalled and Mick Jagger turning his face away, averting his eyes and covering his face with his hand. It's so obvious what they've just seen. Nobody could deny it. So they knew what was going on and, and, and the, the, the concert really did fall apart at that point. They had no, they, they were completely out of control. They had no idea what to do there. 50, 60 Hells Angels on stage any one of them could have broken those guys in half. They were puny little British rockers, weenies in the parlance of the Hells Angels. And the Stones were scared for their lives, and I think, you know, with some justification. So Meredith Hunter, I'd love it if you could talk about him for a bit. How he was killed or, or murdered? What would you call it? No, he was killed, not murdered. Killed, okay. Uh, the, the, the person who uh, uh, knifed him, who stabbed him, uh, was tried for murder and acquitted. 
and probably with uh, 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 some considerable justification since it was filmed, and the film very clearly shows uh, Hunter pulling out a gun uh, uh, just before he's attacked by the guy with the knife. So uh, essentially it was a self-defense killing, but not murder. On the other hand, it was just an egregious crime. It was just horrible. I mean, this guy was a pathetic youth who had been in and out of California Youth Authority since age 11, never actually matriculated in any high school or anything. But he was pretty lightweight criminal, you know, sell a little weed, do a little uh, uh, boosting. And he had a really cute white girlfriend uh, from Berkeley High. And, and he was, he, he'd been out of uh, Youth Authority about four or five months at that point. I think things were looking pretty good for Meredith. He was living with his uh, older sister, whose uh, husband had just been killed in a freak accident when, a, when an electrical line uh, fell on his truck while he was driving it. And, and, and she had two small kids, and he was helping take care of the kids. And, you know, it was, a, it was a, a, an interesting time in his life. And, you know, he's a figure that his name has been known for years because of what happened to him at Altamont. But you got to imagine how different it seems to uh, African-Americans than it does to uh, white people. The, uh, here's this black guy with a white girlfriend at a Rolling Stones concert getting killed by the Hells Angels. I mean, it, there's something so incredibly obvious about that and, and, and uh, painful to black people that uh, white people can't quite appreciate. You know, it's kind of the ultimate case of, the, the, of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and Hunter was just uh, badly mistreated, especially uh, uh, backstage. The, the doctor, uh, head of um, medical there, uh, Dr. Richard Fine, uh, saw him right away and realized that his vital signs were slipping. And he handed him over to other doctors, and he went to find uh, somebody who would give him permission to use the helicopter to take to medevac Hunter out and if he had a chance. And, and it took him forever to find anybody that would take uh, responsibility. And when they did, they said, nope, you can't have it. That's for the Rolling Stones. So Hunter died backstage. And there's a shot in the movie, very effective shot, of uh, his girlfriend, Patty Bredehoff, crying and being comforted by a Red Cross worker. And his the gurney with his body is being wheeled right by them. And then they cut from that to a shot of a helicopter taking off. You know, uh, as if Hunter's body was ever helicoptered out of there. It sat in the office at the racetrack until like 8 or 9 o'clock that night because the, the uh, coroner's uh, office decided to wait until the traffic was over to send a, a truck out to pick up the, uh, the body. So he was never helicoptered out. And that shot in that documentary is nothing but a lie. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. 
find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And just to, to, to clarify, Meredith Hunter was high as a kite, and he charged the stage with a gun. He, seen, uh, uh, he seems to have been uh, uh, doing speed uh, the night before and during the day. There was a fair amount of it in his system uh, in the autopsy. And uh, that, that was news to Patty. Patty didn't know that he was on drugs, and Patty didn't know that he had a gun. So he had a front that was much more um, you know, congenial. So what do you think he was doing at that moment? Do you think he was going after Jagger or Richards? No, 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 no. He was just a hopped-up concert goer. He was a you know, Berkeley kid that wanted to like get with the rock and the hippies and all that. And they, they were a prevalent part of the scene back then. Uh, and uh, what happened was is he wanted to get up on stage, and there were a lot of people on stage, like maybe as many as 200. And so he tried to climb up the front of the stage, and one of the Hells Angels just shoved him back down and uh, he got up in the angel's face. 
bad idea. The angel just socked him and jumped on him, and the other angel saw the one angel beaten on a black guy. They, they piled on, and uh, they, they piled on, and he got loose. And, and that's when he uh, turned and pulled his gun out. And as, as he pulled his gun out, a guy named Alan Pissarro from the San Jose chapter of the Hell's Angels saw this, and he reached down. It was almost like a dancer. He had a knife in a scabbard on his ankle, and he turned around like a, and pulled that out and continued his pirouette as he raised the knife over his head and jumped on Hunter's back and stabbed him in the neck and the back four times. They fell to the ground. Uh, Passaro got up off of Hunter. Other Hell's Angels began to stand on Hunter, kick him, beat him as he lay on the ground. Uh, one of them threw a, a, waste bat, a waste container on him, and then they, they, they wandered off. And a couple of guys in the crowd picked him up and carried him up to the stage. Just your personal opinion. Um, do you think stabbing him was, was necessary? Or do you believe that they could have taken him down without using a knife? Well, let me, let me go here with this. Uh, my detective, uh, the, when, when I started working on the book, I hired a, a private investigator. Uh, and um, he had been a, a sheriff, uh, Alameda County Sheriff, who had uh, the early part of the 21st century uh, reopened the Altamont cold case and investigated it and closed it. Uh, Alan Pissarro was the uh, uh, only assailant. There was no second assailant. There was nobody they wanted to charge. And uh, Scott, who was a cop, and, you know, stand-up kind of guy, that, that kind of integritous, decent human being that Scott is, he said that if Alan Pissarro hadn't been a hell's angel, he'd be considered a hero. What about the gun? Where did it go? And were investigators ever able to examine it? A gun reputed to have been taken from Meredith Hunter at Altamont was delivered to a San Francisco police officer some two weeks later by Bob Roberts, the chapter president of the San Francisco Hells Angels. They had a backdoor relationship with the San Francisco Police Department. And they brought this gun and said that was the gun. Needless to say, it could not be established. So please clear this up as well. There's long been scuttlebutt that Jagger had not really known how violent the American Hells Angels could get. He was used to the tamer UK version of the gang. The English Hells Angels were candy ass. They, they, They drew their colors on their leather jackets with chalk. They made tea backstage at the Hyde Park concert the Stones gave. Um, they weren't even, uh, you, you know, any kind of security guard. They were more like concierges. And they were a joke. A couple of the San Francisco Hells Angels had gone to England a year before and ingratiated themselves with a letter from George Harrison at Apple offices. And they had a Harley and they went to the Christmas party where John Lennon was Santa Claus and so the Hells Angels had a sort of, you know, initiated this uh, cult in, in, in England, and the people that, that uh, followed them didn't really understand the outlaw ethos of the California gang. And indeed, uh, I think Jagger didn't really give it serious consideration. He thought himself above those kind of uh, 
you know, the, the fray of, of, of violent uh, outlaw criminals. And he was the Rolling Stones, after all. And the Hells Angels were indeed, uh, in 1966, uh, named by the California Attorney General as the number one public enemy. I mean, that was kind of a ridiculous thing to say about a motorcycle club that had about 100 members at that time. But that was their reputation when they came into Altamont, and they lived up to it. Yeah, they started drinking pretty early on, right? Drinking? Drinking was just to wash down the, the, the reds and LSD they were taking. Uh, in the book, there's a, a, a description of a guy coming up to Michael Carabello of Santana while he's setting up his congas, a hell's angel, with, with two giant pill bottles with hundreds of pills in them each. One of them's uh, uh, reds, uh, uh, secondals, sleeping pills, and the other's LSD. And, and he offers it to Carabella. Carabella says, no, no, thanks. And Carabella stands back as this guy pours pills out of the jar into his mouth and swallows it with beer. Oh, man. So after Meredith Hunter's body was hauled off the stage, one would assume at that point that the concert would come to an end? He got 300,000 people there. This is 20 minutes, 30 minutes into the concert. Uh... There, there's no control. There's no security force. There's no police department. There's no highway patrol. Uh, so, no, I don't think so. Um, it, 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 the concert fell apart at that point, and, and that's shown in the movie, but it was much worse than the movie shows. When it, it went spare for about 25 minutes while they tried a bunch of different things. They tried, Jagger said, let's all sit down. We'll play a blues. And they play some jam out, some Jimmy Reed stuff, and that doesn't really work. And there's still the audience is screaming through the whole thing. When you hear the tape of the concert and, they, and the Stones stop playing, they don't applaud. They just scream louder because they're screaming all through the show anyway. Uh, and at one point, they're, they're just standing up there on stage and, you know, trying to figure out what the hell to do. And, and Mick Taylor, 22 years old, the new guy in the band, he says, let's play the new song. And they, they recorded this song in Muscle Shoals like earlier that week and Tuesday. Uh, and, and here it was Saturday. So Jagger says, all right, here's a new song. And for the first time in their career, the Stones play Brown Sugar. And it pulls the concert back together. And from that point on, the Stones, and I've heard a 16-track recording of this, play like their lives depended on it. That is intense. Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman have the groove just locked down. And and Richards and Taylor, they're like gears grinding together. And Jagger, Jagger's singing from his most committed, most convincing place. None of that kind of caricature stuff that, that he often lapses into. He's, he's for singing for real. And they plow through the rest of the set for an hour. They practically don't even look up. Uh, at one point, Jagger even thanks the audience for being so well-behaved. I mean, it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. And then they get out of there as soon as they finish the last note, as fast as they can, shoving 17 people onto a helicopter built to hold five. Wow. That's so interesting. So, so were you able to interview concert goers the way that the audience was screaming what led them to scream like that i mean was it was it excitement no no they were screaming in terror it's not it's not it's not ed sullivan time um <laughs> the, the front the front rows 
were getting uh, uh, lambasted and beaten, and and and, and the the violence was was rippling through the crowd because these people are packed in like sardines. So you hit somebody, and the ripple just goes out through the crowd. And anybody who was in the first mm, fifty hundred yards was feeling this. You understand? It's not seeing it, not being around it. They were feeling it as the, as they struggled to stay on their feet. Uh, Grill Marcus, the uh, Rolling Stone reporter who was there that day, he, he has a very vivid account of, of being knocked off one foot and not being able to get his other foot back down on the ground. Uh, everybody I talked to that was anywhere near close to the stage was traumatized by what was going on. And you hear the tape uh, uh, of it, the 16-track, uh, the and you can hear all through the band playing, people are screaming, Ah, 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 ah. And then they finish, and instead of the crowd breaking into applause, they just scream louder. Ah! It's 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 like a a day in hell. Wow, crazy. So once this was over, the Stones left the stage. Did the police descend pretty quickly on the scene? Did they wait for people to clear out? So the police showed up early that day and stayed up the hill with a binocular and a bread truck that had a repeater back to the uh, home base because Altamont was so far away it didn't even have radio contact with the uh, police department. Uh, and they got a call on that radio from a uh, substation who somebody uh, backstage had phoned and, and said that um, uh, there had been a killing. Uh, and then they came down the hill. So the police weren't even present until after Hunter was dead uh, and uh, you know, the Stones were just winding up their performance. You know how many arrests they made that day in Altamont? No. None. Jeez. How long did it take for investigators to locate Alan Pissarro? Did he step forward right away? <laughs> no, it was really hard to figure out for them. It took quite a while. It was, that that that's another chapter in the book, the sort of uh, you know the police beat story, uh, and uh, there was a lot of uh, you know uh, stuff around the footage. Did they have footage of it, and where was the footage? And the filmmakers hiding the footage because it was said the Hell's Angels wanted to kill them for it, and. So there was a lot of craziness around that, and, and Pissarro, uh, nobody gave him up, I'll tell you that, man. They couldn't, they couldn't penetrate that veil of silence, but they managed to figure it out on their own, uh, especially after they had Pissarro already in custody on a separate matter. <laughs> <laughs> Pissarro, by the way, uh, was drowned a number of years later, uh, and uh, his, he had $10,000 in cash in his pockets, which sort of obviates robbery as a motive. Uh, so he came to a very bad end. You mentioned he was tried and acquitted. Was it a pretty quick trial? Great trial. It was a great trial. It was three weeks, and, and the prosecution's big uh, uh, evidence was the film footage, and the defense attorney, who was Johnny Cochran, before he was Johnny Cochran, who was a guy named George Walker, who was the first black attorney in San Francisco, first black basketball player at UC Berkeley, and one of the first black jet pilots in, in the Air Force. I mean, he was an amazing guy, and the Angels were smart to hire him, uh, and he put together an all-white jury and uh, then kept showing the film that the uh, uh, prosecution showed, saying, see, you know, uh, 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 Alan Pissarro killed him, because Pissarro's 
pretty clearly identifiable in that movie. Uh, and George just said, yeah, but the guy has a gun in his hand. So that was a very short uh, set of jury deliberations. Uh, of course, Pissarro, you know, was still in jail on other charges and didn't, you know, he, he got to celebrate that night in, in his jail cell. <laughs> George Walker, by the way, just died at age 93, like a couple few weeks ago. He was an amazing man. So do you believe that this event had any significant part in the end of the hippie era? You know, that's everybody wants it to be the end of the 60s. And I hear that all the time. And, you know, Paul Kantner from the Jefferson Airplane, he always said, Altamont was the end of the 60s. Well, it was December 1969. <laughs> you get a hippie and you say, well, you know, when do you think the 60s ended? You know, and there's a long debate about that. I mean, some people don't think they've ended yet. Uh, some people like the fall of Saigon in 1975, but nobody thinks January 1st, 1970 was the end of the 60s. I don't think Altamont was the end of anything. I don't think Altamont was the end of the Rolling Stones or the Grateful Dead. It wasn't the end of the counterculture. It wasn't the end of the movement. It wasn't even the end of free music in the park, which it could have been. But no, uh, it was just a very bad day, a severe miscalculation, an unbelievable display of arrogance, greed, and innocence. And uh, it, it's, it's a hallmark of the history of rock. Uh, not necessarily uh, the apex of it, uh, perhaps uh, in some ways the yang to Woodstock's yin, but I don't think Woodstock was that what its you know mythology holds. I mean, the crowd burned down the concession stand as a, uh, uh, and 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 broke down the fences in the first place. Uh, ask me, they were really lucky, dodged a bullet to get through Woodstock without anybody getting killed. Four people died at Altamont, by the way, not just Meredith Hunter. Three others were killed, two in an accident afterwards, and one uh, uh, was drowned during the uh, concert. Um, and I, I spoke to a guy who uh, was taken away uh, from the concert site uh, flatlining and brought back to life in an emergency room. Oh, my goodness. So did any any of these people involved in the show the promoters ever feel remorse for what had happened? There was no promoter. Right. Nobody, you know, that's one of the questions I asked everybody that worked on the concert. I said, who was in charge? Nobody, nobody was in charge. I mean, Chip Monk did some stuff. Sam Cutler did some stuff. Rock Scully did some stuff. I mean, but nobody was in charge. No, there were no promoters. On Sunday night, the uh, local FM radio station held a, a, a special about it. And that was really where the news of everything started to, to, to come out. Uh, and uh, Bill Graham, the, the concert promoter in San Francisco, who had nothing to do with Altamont because he had an animus toward the Rolling Stones at that point, uh, called up and excoriated the whole thing. And there, uh, uh, one of the angels, Pistol Pete uh, Nell from San Francisco, he called up, but he was just sort of like, you know, well, I didn't know anything bad happened, man. I was dancing, I was having a good time. But then Sonny Barger calls up and he took on the world. It's a beautiful speech. You know, I don't know if you know how much that we paid for those bikes or not, but they're not, you know, I mean, it's just a, a, an absolute uh, uh, edict from Sonny Barger about what happened. And I think he told the truth. I think he thought that Rolling Stones had played the Hells Angels for patsies and made suckers out of their audience. And I think he's right. Do you lay blame for this at the feet of the Rolling Stones? 
Well, they were responsible for it. If you want to, uh, uh, the, the, I prefer that word, uh, the responsible rather than blame. But they were responsible for it. That was their show. That was their party. They called the shots. Other people were incompetent, but the, I don't think competence would have saved the day. It, 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 and, and they got every bad break in the book. They never got a single good luck break. So, uh, yeah, of course they were responsible. Who else was responsible? Well, I've, I've really enjoyed this. It's, it's quite a bit different than what we normally do here. So this has been great fun. Um, you've written so many books, and the general theme of my show is true crime history. So besides this, this book, highly recommended, by the way, are, are there any other books that you've written that might fit into this general theme? <laughs> <laughs> I did the uh, book about the uh, peppermint uh, twist that uh, was a, a, a memoir of a mobster who owned the nightclub where the twist started. And then uh, a very important book called Here Comes the Night, the uh, dark soul of Burt Burns and the dirty business of rhythm and blues Burns was a songwriter in New York in the 60s and record producer. And at the end of his career, he was mobbed up. And that book goes into great detail about the role the mob played in the New York R&B world. So, yeah, um, you know, uh, Sam Andrew, a big brother in the holding company, once called me the Mickey Spillane of rock journalism. And, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> well, I would take that, too, if I were you. Well, that's great. Um, so, so if people want to learn more about you and the work you've done, where can we direct them? Well, that's why we have joelselvin.com. Uh, welcome to visit anytime. There's podcasts and, and, and tons of information. It's a cluttered little site. I'll be glad to host you there. Well, this has been awesome. Th thanks so much for your time. Eric, this is a pleasure. I'm always uh, uh, pumped to talk about Altamont. I love that book. It really just, you know, it's, it, it, it packs a punch. My guest again has been Joel Selvin, and the book we've been talking about, again, is called Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and the Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Thank you.